Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the very first episode of the Ave Geeks podcast. My name is Flight Corporal Jack Anderson. I'm sitting here with Flight Corporal Nadim Elgazar. Hello, everyone. And Flight Corporal Aidan Paul. How's it going? We are members of the Royal Canadian Air Cadets. Um, and the reason we decided to do this podcast was because over the summer, due to COVID, we were unable to run any clubs. So we had to do one virtually. We did an aviation club, which ended at the end of the summer. But we decided that we should keep talking about aviation. And there's tons of people who can't join the Air Cadet program who are still into aviation. So we thought we'd make this podcast as not just for the squadron, but for really everybody. And another big thing was that a lot of people can't really join extra clubs if they are in the Air Cadet program. So we thought this would be a nice way to include everybody. Um, so I know none of us really see eye to eye on everything here. We have lots of different views on aviation. But one thing we can definitely agree on, World War II was really a golden age for military aviation. Like it had the best planes. There were new planes rolling out so often, tons of dogfights. So for tonight's episode, the very first episode, we're going to be talking about what the best plane of World War II was. Great topic for season one, episode one. <laughs> yes, it most certainly is. Damn right. All right, then let's get into this. Um, so the one problem that a lot of people face when they're talking about aircraft in World War II is it's really hard to compare all the aircraft because they're really designed for different purposes. So to keep this easy, we've decided to divide them into four categories. They are fighter aircraft, bomber aircraft, close air support, and naval aircraft. So uh, we're going to start tonight off with the fighter aircraft. So the contestants for tonight are the Supermarine Spitfire from the United Kingdom, the North American P-51 Mustang from the United States, and the Messerschmitt BF-109 from Germany. Let's go do it. <laughs> yeah, so one thing I think we have to look at is um, weapons. Weapons are a big part of a fighter aircraft the plane with the best weapons is going to rule the skies. So I definitely think that the BF-109 is ahead in this category. As 20 millimeter cannons, it's one of the only aircraft to have cannons on it. The Germans are actually pretty famous for having cannons on their aircraft. Um, now, it certainly doesn't have the range or maneuverability of the other two, but it, it can shoot. It can definitely shoot very well. It can tear a plane out of the sky. For sure, the uh, the P fifty one does have the weapons, but I mean the submar uh, the Supermarine Spitfire does have the uh, maneuverability, the speed, and uh, yeah, the speed. And for sure, it does have uh, has eight Browning machine guns, so it is mainly used for dogfights as well. So, well, yeah, but the the Browning machine gun, you have to realize that it's it's in the three or three caliber. It's not very large, like. Mm -hmm. um, Compared to a 20 millimeter, it's very small. And even the 50 caliber, which is a very big machine gun, that's still nothing compared to a 20 millimeter cannon. Mm -hmm. that, like that's going to tear stuff apart. I actually saw recently a demonstration between uh, a Supermarine Spitfire and um, a BF-109. What they did was they put a part of the wing from each aircraft side by side, and then they fired each other's weapons at it. The Spitfire, it could put a lot of holes into it, but they were the tiniest little holes. They looked like they weren't going to do anything. 
the BF-109, those cannons, they rip the wing to shreds. Like if you get hit by one of those, you are screwed. For sure. But the, the P-51 is definitely not as maneuverable. Like, so for example, uh, due to the shape of the Spitfire's wings, it is able to reach higher speeds than most other planes, including the, the Hurricane. And it has a, rank, a combat range of 1,135 miles or 1,827 kilometers. While uh, the P-51 Mustang uh, has a combat range of only 750 miles or 1,207 kilometers. Really? Mm-hmm. Are you 100% sure that's accurate? Because the way the P-51 was designed, it was designed to be a long-range escort for the American bombers near the end of right. the war. Did you maybe do your research on one of the earlier versions? Because I think it was the early versions were made to be similar to the Spitfire, whereas the later ones were supposed to be more long range. Possibly it was the earlier version of the P-51. Yeah. Well, both of these guys are definitely pretty good aircraft. My money's still on the Spitfire. And that's for the main reason that the Spitfire, unlike the BF-109 and P-51, it is in, the Spitfire was an excellent multi-role fighter. It couldn't be. You could. The Spitfire was was accurate, and while it definitely had some smaller caliber, much smaller caliber ammunition, it made up for that in being accurate and maneuverable, making it capable of close air support and dogfighting. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget the Battle of Britain. Without the Spitfire, the uh, the British would have wouldn't have done wouldn't have been as successful uh, as they were. Right. That's another point there. Um, well, I don't think it was really the Spitfire that led them to victory. I think it was the fact that they had better leadership than the Germans. The German strategy was, at first, it was good. It was bomb the airfields. If you hit the airfields, you're going to knock them out. But halfway through, they started trying to go for the cities instead to demoralize them. The second they switched to bombing the cities, they'd lost the battle because mm-hmm. that gave the RAF. Um, actually, in the... At the height of the Battle of Britain, the RAF, it said it was at breaking point. Two more weeks of the attacks they were undergoing, they probably would have lost the battle. But just in time, the Germans steered off their attack. So I don't really think it's um, the aircraft itself that caused them to win the Battle of Britain. I think it's they had better strategy than, uh, than the Germans did. For sure. Yeah, definitely. And let's not forget the Spitfires were used well into the 1950s. Uh, after the war after the war so it obviously had a part of it that definitely deserved respect yeah well, so was the p51 that was used well into the korean war yeah true all right Looks like we got two main contenders here mm-hmm. yeah i think well another thing you need to think about that's interesting is the spitfire it couldn't do uh, a roll because if it was upside down the fuel pumps, they, they would stop working. They would stop feeding fuel to the engine or they would flood it with fuel. So if you went upside down, your plane would stall, like the engine would stall its fuel for a few seconds. I have to admit, I don't think that's a really good idea in a fighter plane that you can't go upside down without being at a massive risk of crashing. I mean, in World War II, I don't think that was a major uh, problem in the aircraft as mostly because they were much slower and most of them were a lot less maneuverable as I think in this category, the Spitfire is the most maneuverable and it has the highest speed. So I, I get what you're going for, but turning it upside down, sure. You wouldn't do that for long periods of time anyway, but holding it upside down is equivalent to pulling 
a lot of Gs or pulling a lot of negative Gs. So considering how maneuverable they were, you're talking about how good their maneuverability is. If they were so maneuverable that they could pull these massive G turns, I think it's a problem that the engines would just stop working like that halfway through the turn. I think that's a big concern. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, definitely we should come back to this because I think we got enough facts about these planes at the end to crown uh, who is the winner of this category. Uh, right. So let's move on to bomber aircraft. Uh, so the contestants for this are the Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress from the United States, the Avro Lancaster from the United Kingdom, and the Boeing B-29 Super Fortress, again, from the United States. Mm-hmm. I think right away we can eliminate the Lancaster from this list. Uh, yeah, well, the Lancaster was a good bomber. It doesn't compare it to the B-17 or definitely not to the B-29. Yeah, it actually it had the highest payload capacity of the entire war. Oh, yeah, 22,000 yeah. pounds. It could carry the it Grand was... Slam, the largest bomb. Oh, yeah. yeah that's, that's a ton of stuff. But mm-hmm. if you can't make it to the target, which it was notoriously bad at doing, and even mm-hmm. if it made it there, it had problems with accuracy. Yes. I think, I think it's only good for you to have 22,000 pounds of bombs if first of all, you're going to get them there. And second of all, you're actually going to hit your target. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't just think this was the Lancaster. Most British bombers, they had massive payloads, but very little defensive armaments. Like um, look on the Lancaster, for example, it had six machine guns in the first model and eight in the second. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a late war bomber, by the way. They're going up against German fighter jets. Like, I'm sorry, but, and not only that, but they're 303 caliber, but a 303 caliber against a fighter jet is going to be like hitting a bear with a fly swatter. It's just going to piss it off. Mm-hmm. Right. And the Boeing, uh, the Boeing B-17 flying for, like that, that plane can withstand quite a bit of uh, shots fired. Like there's a story I have. Uh, I read a book. It was called Unbroken about a pilot called Louis Zamperini who he was flying a plane, a B-17 bomber. I, I hate to jump in here, but he was in a B-24. Was it a B-24? It I thought the B- one, he, I thought the one B- that was shot, I thought the one that was shot many times was a B-17. I'm sorry, I hate to break that to you, but it was a B-24. All right, I thought it was, a, all right, no problem. Um, but yeah, the B-17 Flying Fortress, it definitely earns its name. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, the B-17 actually had a very interesting history. It wasn't actually originally called the Flying Fortress when it uh, was rolled out onto the ramp for the very first time at the Boeing factory. Um, it was actually about to conduct trials with the U.S. Army uh, against other companies who had submitted similar bombers for testing. A reporter said, by God, that thing is a flying fortress. Boeing saw the PR. They coined it instantly, and it became a hit. Um, I think that that was a really good move on their part. The, the flying fortress that incites fear right into you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the big thing is it had a lot of machine guns. It had guns in areas where the Lancaster just didn't. For example, big weakness was in the bottom of the Lancaster because the Bombay doors and that were so massive that there was literally nowhere to put a gun down there. So, like if a plane came up from below you, you're screwed. And the Germans realized this 
they came up with a special type of plane. They fitted machine guns in the roof to take these down. Like, they definitely knew what they were doing. So the Americans, what they did was they put a ball turret right on the bottom. I, I definitely think that was a good idea. And that became standard on most American planes. Like, um, like the B-29, it was the probably one of the best planes. You guys are going to argue that because it was pressurized to drop the atomic bomb. Right. Had oh, radio no, controlled turrets. The, the B-29 yeah. is, 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 is a yeah. fantastic aircraft. Right. And the, the Boeing B-17 wasn't a, wasn't a whole, it was good. It, it dropped a good amount, like a good uh, capacity. It had four, it, a 4,000 pound bomb load. So it wasn't awful, but it wasn't as much as the Boeing B-29, which had well, a capacity of 16,000 pounds. I know, but the B-29 and most American bombers, they probably wouldn't be where they are if it weren't for the B-17. Oh, for sure not, because the, the B-17 fought way, uh, way more of the war than the B-29. Yeah, yeah, yeah and even before the war, the, B, the B-17 was rolled out in 1935. Mm-hmm. That shows how fast the aircraft technology was advancing in the 1930s because the plane he was replacing, the Martin B-10, it had only been like three years old. Like, and and uh, it, it went from, the, B, the B-17 went from design board to flight test in less than 12 months. So that, that, that just shows you that uh, how well aviation technology developed. Right. Yeah, but it had so many machine guns. Not only did it have so many machine guns, it had them in 50 caliber, which is what you need on an aircraft. Mm-hmm. 50 caliber, it's not as powerful as the 20 millimeters I mentioned before, but 50 caliber can definitely get the job done. It will definitely rip through anything. Mm-hmm. A 303, I'm, I'm sorry, it just won't do the job as well as a 50 cal. Right, that's why the B-29 was so incredibly deadly during campaigns in the Pacific. Like the Zeros oh, yeah. that the Japanese used, like those things were fran- they were fran- they were fragile. Sure, they were fast, but they were fragile as hell. And 50 cows would tear right through that thing. Yeah, right, well, and- we're going we're gonna to save talk for the Zero till our naval aircraft category because mm-hmm. that's one of the aircraft in there. But so I agree know- with Flight Corporal Paul. The B-29 was critical when it came to the victory of Japan. Because mainly, oh, yeah, mainly for its range, because it had uh, a 9,000 kilometer range and a bomb low capacity of 16,000 uh, 16, pounds. Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing that I think you guys will find interesting was that it almost wasn't picked to drop the atomic bomb. They're almost going to use a Lancaster to do the job. Oh, God. Mainly because Maybe- it's probably because it's a bomb capacity. No, the main reason was because this is going to sound really stupid in hindsight. But the Americans at Boeing, they decided to put a wing spar right through the bomb bay, dividing it up into two sections, which is the weirdest thing I've ever heard of. Like they could have, they could have raised the wing up. They could have lowered it down to not go through the bomb bay, but they had to go right through. So the two B-29s that dropped the atomic bombs, they weren't actually your run of the mill B-29s. They were heavily modified so that they could take the wing spars out of the bomb bay, which like, that's just horrible planning to, part, right. to put the wing spars inside an area where you're going to want to fit as like much payload as you can into it. Yeah, that's definitely not the smartest thing to do. Yeah, not thinking about it. Not thinking about it. A Lan- I doubt a Lancaster would even manage to get into Japanese territory. 
So well, the thing is, though, Japan at the end of the war, their aircraft production wasn't in a good state. Mm-hmm. Um, mentioning Zero again, they sort of put all their eggs in one basket with that. They they prayed that the Zero was going to be the best aircraft when they built it back in the 1930s, and then they never really improved upon it. They never came up with new models. They came up with like one or two new fighter aircraft. But by the time it was 1945, there were such flying aircraft as the B-17. Sorry, I, I, I totally stumbled over my words there. But um, there were such good aircraft as the Lancaster. It could fly so high. Same with a lot of other bombers, the B-17, the B-29 especially, because it was one of the first aircraft to have pressurization, which is, I think, a big thing, a big, a big right. key to this. Right, because of the pressurization, that thing could go at way higher altitudes than any other air fighter aircraft on the planet. Exactly. Yeah, at a maximum service thing of 31,000 feet, which is ridiculous. Yeah, back in back, back in 1945, in, oh, yeah. that was thirty-one thousand like, feet. Right, like, yeah. that's how that's how high like a modern airline um, goes. That yeah. is that is cruising altitude. Yeah, considering that this was back in 1945, when less than like 40 years beforehand, the plane had first been invented, and now they're pressurizing it and flying over thirty thousand feet. That is very impressive. Mm-hmm. Right. So for this one, guys, I'm going to have to say the B-17, because if it weren't for the B-17, the B-29 would not have existed. Yeah, the B-17 definitely is a critical aircraft in this. But then again, the B-20, the B-29 came a lot later, but the B-17 was very good for its time. But when the B-29 came, it was obviously a better aircraft, but... I say the B-17 still deserves a lot of respect on its name because of how uh, how much it went through throughout the war. Yeah, and another thing I think you have to look at is the number that were actually built. The B-17 sort of became the main aircraft of the U.S. Army during World War II, the main bomber. The B-29, it was introduced in 1944. So from then until the end of the war, there wasn't really that many built. There was maybe, uh, Paul, we were talking about this beforehand. It was like- It was 4,000 built. 4,000 built, and that's not taking into yeah. account the fact that um, it's actually stayed in service late into the Cold War, like into the 60s. Right, mm-hmm. until the B-52 was introduced. Yeah, so I definitely think that a lot of those planes were probably built during the Cold War, uh, like from the late 40s to early 50s era. So there probably weren't that many that were actually available compared to the B-17, where there were so many of them that they could fly in these massive formations. So for that reason, I'm going to go ahead and say the B-17, in my opinion, was the best. What do you guys think? The B-17 was the best throughout the war, for sure, and had the best performance. But the B-29 was still, it's still, through, through its numbers and its stats, the, uh, the Boeing B-29 was the best, but I would say the B-17 had the best performance throughout the war. Well, well, I guess I'm outvoted then. Why were you going to vote? I was still going to go B-29, I was still gonna go B-29. yeah, just for the pure amount of firepower and range that it had. The B-29, I, I go with the B-29 just for the sake of its numbers and how how far it can fly and the the what it's equipped with is insane, but 
the B-17 had a better performance throughout the war as it was in the war much longer than the B-29. The B-29 came in and just saved America. Yeah. Or like so, ended the war quicker than what it would have. Yeah. So I, I think we can say with certainty that the best bomber of the war was the Boeing B-17 by the United States. So yes. let's move on to the next category, which is close uh, air, support. air support. So mm -hmm. the competitors are the Junkers Ju-87 Stuka from Germany, the de Havilland Mosquito from the United Kingdom, and the Aleutian IL-2 flying tank from the Soviet Union. Um, is, is it just me, or I, I can't say the name, the first the first aircraft that we have on the list? Ju-87? Yeah, the J, the J, the Ju-87. Well, that one's, that's easy to pronounce when you realize that Germans say their J's as uh, Y. So just pronounce it as Junkers instead of Junkers. So I used to call it Junkers too, but it's Junkers. I yeah. learned that it was called Junkers approximately 30 seconds ago. <laughs> yes, oh, really? Like said, I, I, you I, thought... I, I was going to be called Junkers. So thank God you uh, hopped in and called it Junkers. Yeah, I, I used to call it Here. Junkers so much. And then someone said, hey, shut up. It's called the Junkers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well thanks for informing me on that yeah um so i think the main reason the stuka was very good was from psychological warfare it had the dive sirens on them and you could hear one of these coming from a mile away like this is going to sound counterintuitive you're probably thinking oh they could hear them from so far away they probably got all yeah. their anti-aircraft guns ready problem is though you got so like you heard it so often that it would give you PTSD. I've heard a lot of people and they hear sirens now who fought in World War II, they think of that aircraft. People would have nightmares about it. It's, it's a psychological weapon. It's a very early psychological weapon. Like uh, the only psychological warfare you really saw before the thirties was like propaganda posters, leaflets everywhere. But like the Ju-87, it went full out. Like, you could hear the siren. It sounds terrifying when you actually hear that siren. And um, like British soldiers, they instantly realized, they're like, oh God, I'm about to die when they heard that siren. One interesting thing though, is that if you watch movies nowadays that have airplanes in them, that siren is what you hear if like the plane's going down or like a plane's going by. I've seen that in so many movies. That's even in one of the Indiana Jones movies. Uh, I remember the one, the second one, where he's in the plane that's going down. Yeah. Uh, you hear the Ju-87's <laughs> dive siren as it's going down, which is the funniest thing ever. All right, yeah. so the siren is interesting. But then again, I I got to go with the, the Havilland Mosquito because, you know, it its, its capacity is, two sorry, 2,000 pounds of bombs. Or 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 a uh, RP three unguided rockets, and as a bomber, it proved to carry twice the bomb load for which it was designed, and the maximum speed excesses of four hundred miles per hour or six hundred forty kilometers per hour, and a range of more than one thousand five hundred miles or two thousand four hundred fifteen kilometers. Yeah, um, the IL two, I don't really think it was a good aircraft in and of itself. Mm -hmm. The only reason it was very good was because there were so many of them built. Right. Like you could send a whole squadron into combat pretty much into a suicide mission. Um, but like could, there were, right, like there were 36,000 of these planes produced. Like didn't matter yeah, how many shot down, there would always be more. 
And they only yeah. carried 600 kilograms of bombs or, and, or eight rockets. The thing is, though, if there were thousands of them, eight rockets it, per aircraft is going to be a lot of rockets coming at you. Right. Plus yeah. the fact that it had, plus the fact that it would carry a 23 millimeter and 7.62 millimeter guns. It was certainly, it was certainly formidable in an air to air battle. Well, 7.62, it's not really as big as you think it is. It's right. not like the big machine guns you think of when you think of a fighter plane. That's actually the standard Soviet caliber for a, an infantry rifle, 7.62 millimeters. So, mm -hmm. yes, it's it's big. But not, but nowhere, not big enough. We'll go with that. Nowhere near as big as the other ones. Yeah, and it, it, I'm just going to say here, if we're going by sheer statistics, then... We're talking about the IL-2, and we're going by sheer statistics. Then something I feel like I should note here is the fact that it certainly gained a reputation. Like for example, during the Battle of Kursk, these things destroyed seventy tanks in under twenty minutes. Seventy that German Panzers in yeah, under twenty minutes. The only thing is, like, though, the, I'm willing to bet you it's not because of how good the plane is. It's because of the sheer numbers. Like right. as I was saying before, if you send them into a suicide attack, you could lose half the squadron it probably wouldn't matter because you could just bring up a couple hundred more from a factory on the other side mm. of the country. Mm -hmm. like, that's one thing that I think led the Soviets and the Americans to victory. No other country had the power to make thousands of aircraft. And it's not just an aircraft. It's all over the production list. Like uh, you see this a lot in tanks too. Tanks are a great example of this. There's a lot of parallels between tanks and aircraft, I find. Like you can make a right. good quality tank, but if you're not going to be able to create a lot of them, it's not really that effective. But the same with German aircraft, like the Ju-87, it is a pretty good aircraft. I mean, it can hold a lot of bombs. It scared people, but there weren't that many of them built. And I think there was a thousand of them at the start of the war. Most of them got lost to enemy fire pretty quickly because i mean you're diving straight at them with a siren they're gonna know you're coming <laughs> right i mean when it comes to numbers yeah it's obviously good but then again the the the, ha the haviland mosquito as a plane itself it's it, it's phenomenal compared to the the other yeah, two the mosquito is fast like mm -hmm. um, yeah yeah the pretty sure heard the, that it can be as fast as, as a the, single engine the, fighter yeah, yeah, as a Spitfire. Yeah, the Mosquito, it had a had a maximum speed of like just over 400 miles per hour. Like it could outfly a few fighters. Like, uh, like, uh, sorry. Uh, sorry, no, 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 uh, you were right. Yeah. yeah, like except the only problem with that was like the reason it was so fast was due to a wooden frame. But the problem with having the wooden frame was that it was extremely fragile. Uh, right, so... Overall, I, I'm going to go ahead and say the Mosquito, especially because the British had production set up to build a lot of aircraft. A lot of things were standardized. They could pump out enough of them that, see, with aircraft production, there's a fine line between quality and quantity. Like if you right. build them with too much quality, you're not going to be able to create a lot of them. Like you can see that a lot with German aircraft. Like uh, at the end of the war, they're jet fighters. They were brilliantly built, but they only had a very small number of them, so they made them ineffective. Whereas the Soviets went for the complete other end of the spectrum. They made their aircraft absolutely terrible, but they had so many of them that nobody really cared. 
Mm-hmm. I have to agree with you, and uh, Flaco Anderson. The, the the Havilland mosquito is just it, yeah, it, it's my pick in this. Yeah, category. it walks that line very well. Mm-hmm. And then guess we're going for the mosquito this round. Yeah, so the mosquito is the best close air support aircraft of World War II. Let's go to naval aircraft. Oh, so weird. the competitors are the Vought F4U Corsair, the Mitsubishi A6M Zero, and the Curtis SB2C Hell Diver. See, I thought it was Certus, so I got Certus. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go for the, uh, so I'm going to start off here with the F4U Corsair as my pick. I'm yeah. going to go for that too, because you guys were telling me when you're doing research about the Helldiver, you couldn't find anything good about it. Yeah, I couldn't. I, I think that's a pretty good sign that it's not a good <laughs> aircraft. Yeah, yeah also, it was unmaneuverable. It was unstable, slow. The thing was horrible. Mm-hmm. The Helldiver. And, yeah, and for you, however, this some thing... Japanese pilots regarded as the most uh, formidable American fighter of World War II and its naval aviators were able to achieve an 11 to 1 kill, kill ratio. ratio, right? Which mm-hmm. is something that's very rare to see in combat. The only other time I've heard of that happening was with the zero during no, the start be- of the war. No, I, the 12 to was... 1. no I don't mean in World War II. I mean, the only other time oh. I've seen that in a war was like in Korea and late in Vietnam. Yeah. Early in Vietnam, yeah. the Americans relied too much on missiles, but by the end, they'd figured out how to dogfight, so they got up a good kill ratio. I think that was stated in the movie Top Gun, too. Yeah, plus that's where I'm drawing Phantom. my research from. Yep. Yeah, like back in Nam, like, yeah, the Phantom was a god of a plane back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like that's very rare to see an 11 to 1 kill ratio. For right. those of you who don't know what that is, that means for every 11 zero shot down, only one F4U Corsair will get shot down. That is yeah. very good numbers. And the right. Corsair was faster than both the, the Mitsubishi uh, Zero and the, the Curtis. Not to mention, there's this one story I remember back um, in, I think it was in 1944, a guy was chasing, two guys were chasing down a, a, a Japanese KI-45 at the during the middle of the Pacific War, it was it was definitely a bit of an intense donk fight. Um, however, when both F4Us ran out of ammo and the K45 was still somehow in the sky, one of the one of the pilots decided to take his to take his propeller and shred the Ki45 with his own aircraft's propeller. He made two runbys. He made two runbys, both shredding the fuse the fuselage of the Ki45. It went down. The pilot and the plane both survived, That's... and the, that plane actually flew. Actually, and like after like two weeks, after a couple of weeks of repair, that plane was perfectly fine. It was still able to fly. I have to admit that's the most American thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> Run out of ammo and just ram them at full speed. <laughs> um, All right. So I think we we should uh, state the winners of each category once again, just to well, wrap we, up. We still haven't decided on the first category. Remember, right. we never decided on a fighter and. I would just like to say one more thing about naval aircraft was with the Zero, the Japanese, they tried to do what the Soviets did where they had so many that they could lose them and not care. Like the Zero wasn't a very good quality aircraft, but there were a lot of them at the start of the war. The Mm -hmm. Japanese, this is good. Like they did the dumbest thing ever. This is going to sound really dumb in hindsight. They tried to do uh quantity over quality but they didn't have enough factories to do it right <laughs> yeah they they overestimated how many factories that they had so they tried 
produce it. So pretty much they produced a really garbage aircraft in really garbage numbers. <laughs> yeah, that's but that, not like, to not to forget the Americans did fear the zeros at one point in the war, like. And then yeah, in 1939 and yeah. like 1941. Yeah, yes, across the Pacific, it until, was like it was dangerous. Right, until like two or three years later, they figured out how to take them down. Yep. It turns out that the Zero had a very, very fatal flaw, and that was if it if it went really fast, it would tear up the plane. Gotta love Japanese engineering. <laughs> Tears up if you use it too well. Yeah. Yes, it, you, if you fly, if you fly the plane that was designed, if you make the plane that was designed to fly fast, and you make it fly fast, it it can't fly fast. That's that is so hilarious. I find, like, um, they they tried making a really low quality aircraft so they could produce a lot of it, but they didn't have the capability to produce that. I I find that so amusing for some reason. Not to mention zero, like even the. Like, not to mention the zero had like super thin armor, like like half a millimeter thick in some places. Ooh. The fact that it didn't have also it didn't have any self-sealing fuel tanks, meaning any meaning basically any hit would be fatal. Half a millimeter thick. That that's that, ridiculous. That, that's literally that's literally paper. Like, the you, only you good get, thing you get a bullet through that, you're dead. The only good you, you thing about the put zero, your finger through that. <laughs> yeah, the only good thing about it was that it had 20 millimeter cannons. Right. But everything else was so bad that that yeah. offset. I think that's yeah. why it was feared in the beginning of the war. The Americans had lower quality aircraft back then with thinner armor. So 20 millimeter would just rip that up. But right. when they put out anything that was armored, it, it, it couldn't do it. Right. Not to mention just... the fact that the, that the Zero also had the same problem as Spitfires as it, it couldn't do zero-G maneuvers. Oh, seriously? I didn't even know yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it had the same problem as the Spitfire with how it could maneuver. Like this thing, it was fat. It was designed to be light and fast, except again, it can't do the cool maneuvers. It wasn't it can't even, even go that fast. fast. The Corsair was faster than the, the Zero. I know. So, so the Japanese, they shot themselves in the foot with an RPG pretty much. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say about the Zero. They... They made a terrible aircraft. They didn't make a lot of them. Yes, either an RPG or those weird anti-tank sticks that they yeah. used. You mean Bangalore mines? That's what they're called, I'm pretty sure. I, I don't think they used those on tanks. They, they'd like throw them under barbed wire to blow it up. Okay. Um, yeah, no, and do but, know that the Japanese didn't have a suicide attack little stick that would ram into a tank. Right. It was apparently but, very effective, but, you know. So yeah, I think we can all agree that the best naval aircraft was the F4U Corsair, yeah, without yeah. a doubt. Yeah, um, easily. Let's go back to fighter aircraft yes. so that we can figure out what the winner for that is. Oh. Um, when it comes to maneuverability, submarines Spitfire, but when it comes to actually taking down other aircraft, <laughs> did it's you got. I'm I'm sorry. Did you call it the submarine Spitfire? Sorry, sorry, <laughs> not submarine, <laughs> supermarine. Okay, let's bad. make an air. My bad, my bad. And the North. I mean, uh, more British naming for you. <laughs> yeah, See, why, the British, they, they make it so. They're, they their make names it confusing. Are so, yes. Why, what's with all the like uh, water-based names? Supermarine, hurricane, typhoon. Yeah. Can they not come up with something that doesn't have to do with water, a city? Mean. Or an annoying bug. Yeah, but when it but comes like, to actually shooting down other pro- plane, like having, uh, 
it's less maneuverable, the P-51 Mustang, but when it actually comes to shooting down other planes, it, it's the winner in this category. Whoa, 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 yeah. whoa, whoa. What about the BF-109, 20-millimeter cannons? That is way better than the 50 cals on the P-51. Okay, like, yeah, except the, the one problem with that is it doesn't matter how big of a gun you have if you can't hit your target. The BF-109, actually, it was... if, you look at, if you look at the statistics... The BF-109 had the most kills of any fighter plane in history. You can look this up one minute. Either that or it was what one of the Soviet ones, and it came in a close second. had the most kills in right. history. That's a T, not a Y. Um, I'm getting the Fokker Eindecker. The what? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, a German plane, it's a German plane in World War One. No, I'm no, I'm no. sorry, but right. in World what War One, <laughs> the most number of kills scored by an ace was eighty. In World War Two, the highest ace scored nine hundred. So I'm gonna go ahead and say that World War Two probably had higher I'm kill looking, ratios in World looking, War One. I'm just looking. I just I don't know. Google gave me a website that says a popular mechanics article here that says the most the six most lethal aircraft in history, and the freaking age sixty four is up here. So is it perhaps talking about exclusively World War One? Do you not know what an age 64 is? Age 64? Apache. Oh, <laughs> let's call it that. I, I have no clue what age 64 means. I thought you were talking about a plane that's like 64 years old. I'm like, oh, no, it's the, no, no it's, it's the Apache. Okay. And AC-130 is also here. So, yeah, this is definitely not the right website to use. Um, search aerial victories, like uh, which has the best... Uh, which fighter plane has the best um, or has the most aerial victories? Try try doing that. Up here, you got a got a website here. Just the greatest fighter aircraft in history. BF one hundred nine is the number four somehow. And what are the top three? Um, number three, we got the zero. Number two, no. the Sop with Camel. And at number with... one, that and at number one, the Fokker triplane. Why do we keep going to World War One planes? <laughs> okay, well. Two All World right. War One planes, we can definitely rule out. The Zero, we already said, is terrible. Yeah. I think but, we can definitely agree that the BF-109 had the highest kill count of the war. All yeah. right, the BF-109 had the weapons, but it's it was horrendously slow compared to the Mustang and especially uh, the Supermarine Spitfire. Like, it, it. Its top speed was 350 miles or 570 kilometers. A lot, but the the P fifty one Mustang was seven hundred fifty miles per hour, or one, uh, sorry, six hundred, uh, sorry, six hundred kilometers per hour. Six hundred. Okay, but the Mustang. Let's not look at that for a second. Let's look at the Supermarine Spitfire. Supermarine Spitfire had a very similar speed. It might have even been slightly lower than the one hundred nine. Um, also, speed isn't everything. The 109 had very good maneuverability as well. Right. One, one problem with it, though, the one flaw was that its landing gear was reported to be really narrow, so it was notoriously hard to land. 10% mm -hmm. um, of their accidents were in landings. I know. That's, that's a big statistic. Mm -hmm. But I think in combat, it was definitely very effective. Yes. Yeah. It, it's one of the best aircraft of all time. Mm -hmm. I think it definitely had the best weapons out of any of these choices. And the Supermarine Spitfire, I think we can write off because like 
you can't pull like turns that are too many G's or too many negative G's without the engine cutting out. I yeah. think that's a purposely bad feature. Mm -hmm. um, right. And also 303 caliber machine guns. I'm sorry, that just, that completely wrecks it for me. Yeah. An aircraft isn't meant to have 303 because that's actually what the British infantry had. I, I'm sorry, but you're not supposed to use the same gun on a plane as infantry, like maybe heavy machine gunner. Like that's what you see with the Americans. They have 50 cals for heavy machine gunners and planes. The British mm -hmm. have 303 in like your common bolt rifle. Like who designed that? Like that is like, I know we all love to, to praise the Spitfire because it won the Battle of Britain. It protected freedom. But if we look at the numbers, if we look at the facts, I'm sorry, it was not as good an aircraft as the BF-109. For sure, yeah. All right then, I guess this round's going to the BF-109. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, the so, B so for uh, fighter aircrafts, it goes to the BF-109. And uh, the bomber aircraft already establishes the B-17 Flying Fortress. Uh, close air support, we all said the, the de Havilland Mosquito. And naval aircraft, we did establish as the Corsair. So we have all our planes that we establish are the best in every category in World War II. We can't really pick the best one of all time because, you know, there's it, it, each plane had its purpose. Yeah, right. but of each category, I think those are definitely the four best of all of World War II. Yeah. yeah. Like, there's Agreed. no way we could compare those three. Like, we could compare victory statuses, kill ratios. Yes. But it's, honestly, they would never really be accurate to tell you how good of a job they did because at the end of the day, they, a lot of them were actually on different fronts. Like um, the B-17 and the F-4U, they were on complete opposite sides of the world. It would be very hard to compare them. Right, yeah. and the B-29 was used exclusively in the Pacific campaign. Yeah, exactly. For sure. All right. So, so they were... They were definitely designed for two different types of warfare. Like you'll notice that in Pacific designed aircraft, they're, they're typically a lot lighter than their European counterparts. This is most, uh, most notable on the fighters. You'll notice that the F4U and the, the Zero, they were much simpler. Like they didn't have all the bells and whistles that you had in Europe because you didn't really need that. There wasn't much night action going on over there. Most of the battles over there were big ocean battles where you could look out, you could see them coming for miles. Whereas in Europe, there was dense forests, there were hills, it'd be hard to see them. So they had to establish radio, or sorry, radar, or radio too. Um, I think that's why you see in a lot of European designed fighters, uh, some of the night fighters and some of the late war fighters, they had uh, very advanced radar systems on board. You don't really okay. see that on many Pacific aircraft. Yes. All right. So I think we have each aircraft established yep. in each category. And I think we should wrap it up. All right. Yep. So you have been listening to the very first episode ever of the Ave Geeks podcast with the three Royal Canadian Air Cadets. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah. Yep. If you have any suggestions, there is a comment section actually on our podcast page on Anchor. Uh, so you can go there. You can leave a message for us. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss, go and leave it there. 
Um, other than that, have a nice night. All right.